Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan reached out to Twitter and asked for your questions and your thoughts and concerns about the church, faith, spirituality. And so in this episode, Jonathan takes some time to answer a few questions about equality, liturgy and the Holy Spirit, and is Jesus a feminist? Enjoy. Welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man. I don't know why I just said that that way, except it is 1245 on Sunday night, or I should say early Monday morning, and yet I'm here with the beautiful Will Rutherford in his beautiful studio. Tulsa looks beautiful tonight, and it's especially a good night because I get to answer Q&A from Twitter, and I love Q&A from Twitter. Will, how do you feel about Q&A from Twitter? I think Q&A from Twitter is great because there's a lot of questions that are out there that people are feeling lost, they're feeling confused, or just this wondering. Or possibly you've said something profound and you move on and they're like, wait, I have a question. And so I really think this is an opportunity to expand on thoughts, ideas, sermons, anything that anyone wants to know about. That's so nice that you still think things I say are profound sometimes. I'm not I, feeling I very profound today. Other people think that. Other people think that. <laughs> other people think that. I don't know if I feel profound tonight, but I feel open and um, I really am always thankful for the folks who follow on Twitter and support that way. And, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of cool how even that uh, that form of social media in particular seems to be, it's it's weird because I know that I don't technically believe in the idea of being a Twitter pastor, but also kind of feel like wherever you are, you are who you are. And, yeah, and it's just, I don't take it for granted that when people kind of look to me or to the show in that kind of space in sort of a pastoral way. So, you know, as much as I... No, we can't be in everybody's lives in the way that we want to. I just, I love when people, because I've thought about even some of the questions we got this time as always, you know, you kind of feel the sense of coming from people's very much from their real life and real experience and getting to kind of speak into some things on the ground in, in kind of a pastoral way. That's always a privilege to be able to do. Awesome. Well, here's our first question from Kendra Sitton. Hi, Kendra. She asked, you talked about finding the Holy Spirit in churches experiences that are other how do we balance finding a long-term church community with bouncing to new things when we experience the spirit well i think that there is a rhythm that is as ancient as the story of scripture itself between i mean i really i don't even think of this as just a a new testament phenomenon in in what we call the Old Testament, you know, in the in that Jewish story, I feel like th- these rhythms are already there of liturgy is to show up at the same place at the same time and do the same thing over and over. And you don't have to feel it. It doesn't require um, some emotional experience or something to be valid. 
And yet in the midst of that liturgy where you show up at the same time, the same place, doing the same thing, there's also room for surprise. There's room for spontaneity. In fact, the rhythm and the rootedness of liturgy even creates room for spontaneity. This might seem like an odd example to people, but I've thought about it so many times, and I hope this speaks to the question a bit. In the book of Joshua, everybody knows and loves the story of the Israelites walking around the walls of Jericho, and they go around the city, you know, seven days, and they're just walking around over and over again. And they're, they're doing the same thing the same way every day uh, with really no result. It, it, it is a liturgical act in that way. They just keep showing up, doing the same thing the same way. And yet, at the end of the last walk on the seventh day, God gives this instruction that when they walk that time, that they're supposed to shout. And it's the shout when then the walls actually crumble. And I, I kind of... That that gave me this thought years ago that I still think about of this idea of the liturgy and the shout, that there is space for both, that there is room for the ordered and there is space for the primal and that even within the order, you know, that there needs to be space for it. So I don't think these things are intention at all. I actually think that the rootedness and rhythm of liturgy, if done rightly, um, can create more space for the surprise of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I pastored my Pentecostal uh, church in Charlotte, I had to say my, you know what I mean, our church, it was, um, don't mean that to sound possessive, but I remember like when we first made the move to weekly communion, I was a little afraid because, you know, I was used to having the freedom and flexibility every week to do invitations. And I wasn't quite doing the old school, like Billy Graham, come down and give your heart to Jesus. But there was often some sort of interactive, you know, prayer experience. People could lay hands on each other, or I loved having that kind of response time. And I remember just being afraid <laughs> that by having communion every week, that it would rob something of the spontaneity of that and room. But you know, what I've come to believe about communion in particular is that whenever you create space in a service to be ordered around the Eucharist, you're making space for God himself. Part of what I love about the Eucharist is that it doesn't accomplish anything in utilitarian terms. If God doesn't show up through that practice in some kind of a supernatural way, it's a waste of time. Or a better quote from Flannery O'Connor, if it's a symbol, to hell with it. Like, And what we found happening is that, because, you know, I think, uh, I talked about in the sermon recently that actually was on the podcast, for those of you who heard it, how... I feel like I hear equally um, sometimes from people who come from more evangelical or charismatic backgrounds and discover the liturgy. It's like, oh, where has this been on my life? This is where God really is. And then I meet people who, who grew up Catholic or Episcopal or Orthodox, and they discover some kind of more Pentecostal, charismatic or free expression. They say, oh, that was just dead, dry, rote liturgy to me. That was, here's where God really is. And I think both sides are telling the truth. But what, the, what happens is that when something's not familiar to you, to you, you pay attention to it in a different way. That's that's the difference. You come looking. And if you're looking for God, then you're going to find God, right? So all that to say, when we went into weekly Eucharist and people were coming in with such fresh expectation of what that experience would mean because it wasn't wrote to them, because it, you know, everybody, they weren't cradle, whatever. They were approaching it with kind of very, with a lot of intentionality about what they were doing. I was fascinated by how many stories we heard of miracles, of people having these really powerful, 
supernatural encounters with not that again you need that for it to be validated but i think the point was it was creating space for the holy spirit by creating space for that meal so i just think those things go hand in glove and i think that the most healthy liturgical expressions do provide some kind of room or space you know in there for the spirit to work so i just don't think those things are mutually exclusive and that they actually can, you know, can nurture each other, that liturgy at its best creates space for the surprise of the Holy Spirit and the surprise of the Holy Spirit of encountering God through common uh, practices of the church is and knowing that that is there, even though it doesn't always kind of show its full colors. We don't always go to the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't always see the glory, but we know sometimes we do. And I, and I think that even, you know, knowing those encounters still happen, it just, uh, it's something that keeps us going in the liturgy in the times when we don't feel it so much, you know, cause I, uh, I have plenty of times where I don't feel or have some kind of sensory experience of the presence of God in, uh, the, the liturgy that's, um, necessarily going to be palpable, but I do, but I do know that those moments are going to come and I'm not surprised when they come. And I try to keep my heart humble and expectant for that. I hope that address the question somewhere in there somewhere. When Jonathan, when I was uh, studying in seminary, I was making my, you know, shift kind of from an evangelical to an Anglican. I was asking my professor when I was studying liturgy, I was asking him these same questions. And I was like, you know, how do you keep the liturgy from feeling mundane and the same and over and over again? And he responded, liturgy has never experienced the same twice mm. because we show up different every single time. Yeah. Yes. That's so good. That's so good. Why? I should have not said any of that. And you should have just gone right there. That's so great. That's my little, that's just my little, like, 25 cents. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I love that. All right, so we're going to take a shift. The next question here is from Jenna Lee Hutchinson. She asks, what do you believe the Bible says about male and female equality? Do you believe Jesus was a feminist? Hi, Jenna Lee. What I believe the Bible says about male-female equality is one of the most radical statements that we get, not just in the New Testament, but anywhere near that time period. Nobody in that part of the world at that point in history is talking like the Apostle Paul when he says that in Christ there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Um, it's interesting because I think Paul gets a lot of shall I say, shade in this day and age for people who don't, you know, and I understand that, right? Because in some of Paul's letters or some of the letters attributed to Paul, what's called the household uh, codes, which maybe I'll address more at length another time, there are other ways where Paul seems to be reinforcing the patriarchal structure of his day. I don't think that's ever what Paul is actually doing. I have a very different understanding of where those texts fit in. I think Paul at his best and at the kind of the height of Paul's theology, I think he absolutely glimpses something that's so far beyond and ahead of his time culturally. And I think he really does. I think there really is this understanding in the early church that while the world is still very much in this patriarchal framework, that the way that the Holy Spirit has has is breaking in, is changing everything. Now sons and daughters can prophesy because it is the Holy Spirit that is the source of authority. So whoever the Spirit falls on within the community, if they speak under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then they're to be listened to. And if that's your sister, then you listen to your sister. If it's your mother, you listen to your mother. If it's your daughter 
who is speaking forth the word of God, then you listen to that. So I believe that there is a radical equality, that it's the heart of the New Testament. I do not think it's an accident that the longest recorded conversation between Jesus and anybody in the New Testament is with the woman at the well. I don't think it's an accident that that Samaritan woman who encounters Jesus in, what is that, John 5, is in a sense the first evangelist. And then it's also women who are the first evangelist of the resurrection. Uh, I do believe that there were women that were numbered among uh, the earliest apostles. And I tend to think that there's a fairly robust conspiracy to bury that information sometimes in the history of the church. To your question, is Jesus a feminist? Um, the pushback I'm going to get for my answer is people are going to say, everybody has a different idea of what feminism is, and they're going to read it in. I understand that, you know, to a point that might be uh, an anachronistic uh, uh, construct for the text. But I, I'm going to go for a strong yes on that. I, I think that Jesus absolutely is a feminist insofar that I think that Jesus comes with a really specific uh, mission for the the daughters of Abraham. There's a beautiful text where there's a, this uh, woman who has been despised and rejected in her culture, but Jesus refers to her as a daughter of Abraham. I think there really is a way in which now uh, the the daughters, even of that of that Jewish covenant, are now being honored and seen and known in a way that they weren't seen and known before. And they're empowered. Uh, they're empowered because, again, the same spirit that is on Jesus, the same spirit that anoints Jesus to preach the gospel as good news to the poor, uh, sight for the blind, liberty of the captives, uh, that, that, same, that same liberating power of the Holy Spirit, the same power which raised Jesus from the dead, is now falling on these early uh, daughters of the church, and they do prophesy, they do speak forth God's word. So insofar that I believe that Jesus fully validates uh, the the calling and the vocation of women in the kingdom of God uh, to preach and proclaim God's message, to work for the kingdom in the earth, yes, I believe that there is a radical gender equality that that Jesus ushers in that's part of the inaugurated kingdom. And I think that when we're living in light of that kingdom and we're living in light of, you know, not not the fall, but living under that original blessing that God creates male and female in his image both and and calls both good. Uh, that when we when we see that on the ground and we see that kind of radical equality among the people of God, I think we're glimpsing something of what the future is going to look like uh, when 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 His kingdom is is not just inaugurated but fully rules and reigns. So I'm giving a strong yes to all that anachronism. Be damned. Yeah, Jesus is a feminist. I'll stand by it. Um, so Tucker Edwards asks, "What are your thoughts on open theism?" Well, Brother Tucker, thank you for asking that question, because I've thought a lot about open theism. I do have thoughts. I do not consider myself to be an expert. Uh, Greg Boyd is a good friend of mine, and Greg is probably, I'd say, kind of the, the premier person in the last 20, 25 years to sort of advance that idea and construct. I've studied it carefully. I've thought about it a lot. Um I have mixed feelings about open theism, honestly. Um, what I I will say this, uh, open theism has been controversial, to say the least. And for people who want a sense of what that is, uh, just to address the framework a little bit. So open theism is, in classical Christian thought, there are a couple different ways to think about issues of God's providence, God's sovereignty, God, foreknowledge, all of that, you know? And so especially if you think more in a Protestant context, 
um, kind of in the, the, the Calvinist school, there's a strong emphasis on predestination and the way some people will take that and the way some people interpret, for example, John Calvin's idea of double predestination is that God essentially scripts everything, everything like that before the dawn of time, God knows who's going up and who's going down. That's how that theology can be read kind of on one extreme. But on the other hand, people who, again, operating in that kind of Protestant framework would kind of identify within, say, more an Armenian tradition uh, or like Wesleyan kind of folks, and I come from those roots, they would say, we don't believe that God scripts everything and we're not pawns on a chessboard, but we do believe that God foreknows. Even if God does not script, God does not foreknow. What open theism says is that rather than this idea, you know, of somehow God existing outside of time and space, and therefore he knows the future, open theism essentially suggests that the future is simply not here yet for God to know. It doesn't exist yet. There are some things that are yet to be determined. Now, open theisms, uh, open theisms, <laughs> open theists, uh, I think for the most part would want to say, who are followers of Jesus, that they still believe that there are certain ends, like of God's good uh, plans for creation, that are going to be fulfilled. Like love is going to win in the end. You know, Christ conquers the uh, the 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 power of Christ through His cross and resurrection will conquer over sin, death, hell, and the grave. That outcome, is, in a sense, is secure. But how we get there? the individual particular roads, you know, still could be open. I'm very sympathetic to open theism because I think that there is truth in that a lot of ideas that I think are more part and parcel of Greek philosophy and not native to Christian theology do get imported into the church rather quickly. So I think that idea of God as the un, as the unmoved mover who exists in kind of a detached way apart from creation. He's not moved. He doesn't feel. He doesn't respond. I don't think that's a biblical concept of God at all. And if, you, if you're not sure about that, read the prophets or just read even the stories about Moses and his, him contesting with God and God changing his mind. That's so much of, the, of the, the Hebrew scripture is this lively contest between God and his people where there's a real interaction that's there. Part of the scandal of uh, God as he appears in the Old Testament is that God, uh, God feels pain and that God responds. God takes a risk in loving us the same way that any of us take a risk when we decide to really love someone. So that's part of what I like about open theism is I think there's room for that kind of dynamic. You know, we're called in Paul's language to be co-creators with God. We're co-laboring with God. So this idea that like there's new things that we're helping to build and create and all that. So really sympathetic to it. And I will say in particular, I'm a fan of the French philosopher Jacques Ellul. And long before Greg and some of those guys really fleshed out the idea of open theism, really Clark Pinnock, who was significant. Clark Pinnock, uh, I, I got to hear him lecture when he was still alive. He's been gone for a while. But Clark Pinnock, devout Christian man who also helped pioneer this idea of open theism. Um, I'm sympathetic to it. I, I definitely don't think it's heretical. Uh, I, you know, that when Greg and Clark and some of those guys first started talking about open theism more, you had people just trying to, you know, burn them at the stake. And it's uh, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, you can... You can believe the creed, uh, Nicene or Apostles' Creed, you can believe that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead and think anything you want about these issues, and it doesn't make you less of a creedal or orthodox Christian. That said, 
I still think, while I'm sympathetic to open theism, and I find Clark Pinnock's work and my friend Greg Boyd's work to be really compelling on this issue, I'm still... I'm still a little bit of a holdout. I think the best way I'd know how to say that, how can I articulate this? I think it's like, um, I'm still a little suspect maybe that we're able to even get our heads around the kind of fundamental framework questions there. You know, I, I just think that, uh, what God knows and how God knows. I'm not scandalized by open theism, by the idea that like, you know, the future isn't here yet, and so there's some things that may not yet be known. I just kind of feel like some of those questions are a little bit beyond our pay grade, and it seems a little presumptuous to me to say in any kind of a conclusive way what God does or does not know. I feel very strongly that God does not script. Uh, I definitely feel strongly about that, and I, I do believe that we partner with God and that depending on our choices, that other paths uh, may be open or shut based on our behavior. I think we have consequences in that way. But whether I think, you know, there, you know, it's, it, it's all kind of, um, it's exactly open. I don't know. Uh, I'm still wrangling with those ideas. I'm still, you know, thinking about them. I think that, um, I think that the basic impulse though of open theism that I do feel strongly about is that, it, it tries to just give space for, I don't know, the radical freedom of God and the freedom of creation, uh, where, where choice matters and we're not robots. And uh, like, again, I think we get from the very earliest part of the Jewish story, there's a lively dynamic between us and God, and there's a back and forth and, a, and there's movement there. It's, it's dynamic. It's not static. Those impulses have to be right. And the idea that God's heart is soft and tender and able to be moved and that God responds, you know, not, not, not reactive, but God does respond based on what we say and what we do. All that, you know, essentially feels right to me. So it was a very long answer to that question. I hope by now you're not sorry you asked. It's a long conversation. <laughs> well, are you sorry that I, that I, are you sorry they asked? <laughs> no, it's a great, it's a great question. It's really important. All right. Next question. How do you practice a robust charismatic spirituality like gifts of the spirit prophetic words when it feels like so much of where the streams came from have now become pretty gross like bigger ministry schools or bigger conferences etc how do you practice it you practice in community how do you practice it how do you practice spiritual gifts you practice with humility i think it's very important because this is not new to us or to our time or to our context from the from the very beginning of the Christian story where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church and there is sort of a radical democracy to that in a way, um, insofar that I say democracy, insofar that all of God's people, all of God's sons and daughters have access to that same flow of divine life and power. From the beginning, there were always excesses. So Paul, when he's writing the church at Corinth, has to correct them. Because what's happening is the believers are coming together, and when they gather to worship, people have become so enamored with speaking in tongues that that's all they're doing. And it becomes confusion. What Paul says is happening is that non-believers come into their midst, and they literally think these folks are crazy because everybody's competing to speak in tongues. There's no order. There's no sense of uh, cohesion to it. It just feels like chaos. And these gifts that have been given to serve the larger body of Christ instead become this kind of competitive thing and their power dynamics at play. And people are, 
you know, they're kind of striving for, for glory and attention through these gifts, which is not how they're intended to be used. So it's important how Paul addresses this. Paul places parameters. He says, when you get together, don't everybody speak in tongues at once. At once, speak speak one at a time. And if there's, if someone gives out a tongue, and there's someone who feels a has a gifting from the spirit to interpret a tongue, let them interpret. And if nobody interprets, then person needs to sit down and speak quietly between themselves and God. That's what Paul says. He doesn't condemn them. He just simply says, if there's not an interpreter, and therefore this is not seem to be a moment where this gift of the spirit is going to edify the entire body, then they just speak quietly between themselves and God. But he doesn't condemn it. And not only does he not condemn it, what Paul specifically says in 1 Corinthians 14 is, do not forbid people to speak in tongues. I think that's fascinating because whenever you have an abuse of any sort of spiritual gift, when I, forget that. When you have an abuse of any kind in any category in life, the, the, the first instinct is, well, let's just not do that at all. Let's just take away the privilege. Okay, if this has been done wrong, so now no one can do it. Because if it happens, then there's there's going to be space for abuse. But Paul says specifically, don't forbid people to speak in tongues. Abuse is not supposed to lead to no use. It's supposed to lead to wise, discerning pastoral care, where in the context of a safe community where people love each other and care for each other, that there's discernment that happens. And within the broader, uh, within the safety of a body, that can happen. The important thing really about spiritual gifts to keep in mind is that the whole function of them, if you don't remember anything else I say about this, here's the thing I hope you'd remember. The whole function of spiritual gifts is... They're a way of loving on others in the body of Christ. That's what they're there for. They're gifts of love. They're, they're gifts of service. They're never about bringing glory or attention to ourselves. They're ways uh, that when we operate within any kind of gift of the Spirit, it's always for the edification of someone else. So I think love creates the parameter. Um, it, it is operating within this gift in this moment going to be a way of loving my brother or my sister or a way of kind of seizing some kind of attention for myself. Sometimes that's a difficult thing to discern, but that's the right kind of question. Is it loving? Does it serve the community or does it serve me? And I I think it's also important that whenever we operate in a gift, that then there's room then that we are, um, and a lot of people aren't going to like this word, but submissive to our authorities. And by the way, if you're not in a community where you feel like you can in good conscience submit to the authorities there, you're probably just in the wrong community. In the right kind of community where there's safety and there's love and you have good, strong, healthy spiritual fathers and mothers, submission won't be a dirty word because it's not demanded. It's something that comes naturally out of an extension of honoring people who you know care for you and look out for you and look out for your own best interest. So, uh, you know, but I think within those kind of parameters where you have healthy spiritual authority, and where there's a, a context where people know each other and are known and there's safety in that, spiritual gifts can be practiced in a safe way. There'll still be abuses. Sometimes things are going to go off the rails. And when it does happen, that's not the end of the world. That's what you need the community there for. So there's people around where they're in leadership or just people on the, on the, on the ground who are able to say, hey, appreciate you sharing this gift. Thank you for sharing these words. Thank you for sharing your heart. But I, I'm not sure if this is what's best for our community right now. And there's room for pushback and dialogue. I just think we should be less afraid of those things, less afraid of that kind of chaos. You know, when it happens, uh, it, it's an opportunity there for discernment and clarity that that will that will lead to order. So, but because because here's the thing, I, I I feel like I need to most stress: if there's not room for a little bit of messiness, there's no room for the Holy Spirit at all. If there's not room for, that, that's just the way it is. If you're going to create space for what's holy and good, inevitably, whether you like it or not, you're also creating room 
for chaos and some that might not be holy. But you don't have to be afraid of that when you're a community and a family where you know that you're loved. So, Jonathan, as we kind of wrap this up, um, we've talked about the Holy Spirit and liturgy. We've talked about equality. We've talked about free will and the sovereignty of God. We've talked about feminism. And we've talked about practicing and charismatic spirituality. What would you say to uh, your listeners that are finding themselves maybe in all these intersections? I believe, I believe right now in this time, like there are more people on the lines than they ever have been of like, I am charismatic, but I long for this, for the sacramental or I'm a feminist, but my pastor's not. I feel like more people are finding themselves. I don't know what to do. I want to make a transition either towards more of a charismatic expression or more towards a liturgical expression. Um, but I'm finding myself, myself a little bit stuck. Um, what would you say as we kind of, that's, that's a great question. I think it does summarize so much of what I'm hearing right now. And I know people are grappling with this and the, Part of the reason why it's difficult to know how to best answer this question is I do believe that there are so many different communities that are serving the kingdom of God in different ways, and that people within those respective communities, sometimes God will call you to stay in a place where you're uncomfortable, and it doesn't fit really well in some ways, and it's it's not what you'd most choose, but there really is a sense that that's where you're, you've been placed for a season. There are other times where you really just... Nobody needs to be on the margins of a community forever. You need camaraderie and friendship and support and not to feel like you're odd all the time. And knowing which is which, knowing when to lean into that community where you're not necessarily comfortable, knowing when it's time to step away requires such care and discernment on a case-by-case basis. So I can't answer it too broadly. What I would say, though, is this. Wherever you are... Pay attention, because, you know, I truly do believe that you have full access to the goodness and the beauty of God inside of any tradition if you're looking hard enough for it. Now, that doesn't mean that at some point you might not get to the end of the line in a respective place where you need to move on. But the Holy Spirit is not, can't be trademarked or copyrighted by any particular group. No one, um, no one owns the Spirit. And I think if we're looking and our eyes are open and our ears are open to encounter God, if we're open to the surprise of God, you can always find God in any kind of context, in any kind of setting. I mean, you really can. And it's crazy to me how just when our eyes or ears are open, how God will meet us in places where circumstances can be so unideal. And there's just this way that God brings manna to us in the middle of the wilderness even though we, you know, we may not love everything that's happening around us right now. So pay attention to the surprising ways that God might be meeting you or want to meet you, even in the midst of a place where you're frustrated. But I think, you know, outside of that, I would just really want to encourage folks that if you're in a discernment process of trying to figure out, do I press deeper into this tradition? Do I pull away? What does it look like? I would just encourage you not try to make those decisions on your own. Um, have some conversations with some trusted friends, whether directly in that community or not. But people who know you will shoot straight with you, who love God, who love you, and can who just be part of that discernment process with you. You know, Because what you can't do, this really isn't healthy, is to stay inside a community technically, but to really just be profoundly alone and isolated. That's not good for anybody. You need close spiritual friends 
who you trust and they can trust you, where you can have real authentic conversations about what's actually having your own soul, where you're struggling, where you're feeling hung up, where you feel like there's grace. You need to be able to talk about those things freely and openly. So please find those people and have that kind of community. And, um, you know, yeah, if you can't find that within your local expression, maybe it is time, you know, to move on somewhere else. But I think if you'll be prayerful and open enough about that, then the Holy Spirit will, you know, will direct. And I'll say this too. Um, part of the reason why I think people are especially stirred up in this way. And I, what, what stinks about it is that the way we, we experience this is angst. We can often feel like we're on the inside of this particular line somewhere and there's this, it can feel constricting and we just want to get out and get on the other side. You know, part of what I really believe is happening right now is that, um, not to get super spiritual on y'all, but the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17 is straining towards fulfillment, the unity of the church. There's a reason those lines are quivering right now. And there's a reason why now, and I, you know, I really don't think I, everybody wants to think their time is special, but I think this statement is, is actually uniquely true right now. The lines have never been more fluid in the church than they are right now in this moment in history. Never, never, never has there been more opportunities for intersection and interaction and engagement between the great traditions. Like, I, there, that, there's movement of the spirit and all that. So I just want to encourage you that if you're feeling a little frustrated and feeling a little bit of constriction, that it may not be that there's something wrong with you. I think there's something of the groaning of the spirit in that because we need each other and we need all the gifts of these um of each tradition within the body of Christ, we need each other. And I think some of why that restlessness is happening right now is because there's a real way that, again, not to be too theological, but that there's the aching for that kind of eschatological fulfillment where we're able to drink freely from, 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 from this well uh, from which all of this life and beauty comes. And we don't have to draw hard and fast distinctions between traditions and tribes. So some of that, my friends, I think is not just your own angst. You may even be tapping into something of the angst of the spirit who groans and sighs for that restoration and reconciliation that's yet to come. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.